you have your Bibles, if you'll open them to the book of 1 Corinthians, chapter 15, there are some extra Bibles on the back pews. If any of you don't have a Bible, the brethren, one of the brethren will get you one. If you don't have a Bible, just slip your hand up. Anyone needs a Bible? Okay. And we're in 1 Corinthians 15, verse 24. I believe in order to get the connection, let's drop back and briefly read from verse 20 because it will give us the connection of what we're talking about. So let's read with verse 20. It says, 1 Corinthians 15, verse 20, But now is Christ risen from the dead, and become the firstfruits of them that slept. For since by man came death, by man came also the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, even so in Christ shall all be made alive. But every man in his own order. Now notice this in verse 23. Christ the firstfruits, afterward they that are Christ at his coming. And then in verse 24, then cometh the end. Some translations put it, then cometh the end ones. Actually, the end comes when the last of the resurrection takes place. And the reason I say that is because when we read the rest of the verse, we'll see. When he shall have delivered up the kingdom to God, even the Father, when he shall have put down all rule and all authority and power. And we'll go on to verse 25 in just a moment. But when we speak of the resurrection, 1 Corinthians 15, verse 24 now, then cometh the end. When we speak of the resurrection, let's remember that this follows the same pattern as Israel of old. First, in the feast of the harvest of old, Israel had the first fruits, and then they had the harvest, and then they had the gleanings. Now, Christ is the first fruits of them that slept, is plainly stated here. And in verse 23, you have the harvest of that resurrection when it says, Afterward, they that are Christ at his coming... And then it says in verse 24, then cometh the end. That's the gleanings. Now let me try to give you this. Christ was resurrected from the dead. That's the first fruits. And when Jesus comes again for his own, and that could be at any moment, we call it his coming for the saints, or some refer to Christ's coming, imminent coming as the rapture, which is true also, at which time the Bible says in the book of 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, that the dead in Christ shall rise first, and then we which are alive and remain unto the coming of the Lord shall be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and so shall we ever be with the Lord. That's, that's those that are Christ that is coming. And then we find that at the end of the age, and you'll find this in Revelation chapter 19, when the Lord comes in power and great glory, and all the millennial saints, those that have died during the seven years of great tribulation, that they also have to be resurrected. And if you look in verse 4 of the 20th, 20th chapter, it says, And I saw thrones, and they that sat upon them, and judgment was given unto them. And I saw the souls of them that were beheaded. Now look, for the witness of Jesus, and for the word of God, and which had not worshipped the beast. The souls of those tribulation saints were there present. And it says, neither his image, neither had received his mark upon their foreheads or in their hands. And they lived, they were resurrected, and they lived and reigned with Christ a thousand years. But the rest of the dead, that's the wicked dead, lived not again till a thousand years were finished. This is the first resurrection. So to complete the first resurrection, we have to go all the way through to the final of the resurrection of the saints, even including the tribulation saints that will go into the millennium. 
And that has to be included. So, you see, really, the resurrection that's referred to follows the same pattern as Israel's feast of harvest of old. There was the first fruits and the harvest and the gleaning. So those are gleaned during the millennium. You'll find that time and time again you saw, if, if you've studied with me the book of Revelation, it says, And I saw the souls of them that were beheaded for their witness, for the word of God, for their testimony which they gave, all through the book of Revelation during the tribulation. And they were resurrected. They were, they were souls under the altar. And all of these are included. These saints that uh, were killed during the tribulation, or that will be killed during the tribulation, they'll be there too. And they'll form, form a part of that first resurrection. First, in the sense that it's all of the, the dead in Christ and all the living believers that will make up and un be united at, at that time that we go into the millennium. But anyway, let's look at the next verse now. 1 Corinthians 15, verse 25. For he must reign till he hath put all enemies under his feet. That is, Christ must reign. It says the last enemy that shall be destroyed is death. The Bible teaches us that he has victory over death. In fact, in this chapter, it says, O death, where is thy sting? O grave, where is thy victory? And it says, the sting of death is sin, the strength of sin is the law, but thanks be to God, verse 57, which giveth us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Not only is he victorious over death, but he has made it possible that you and I be victorious over death with him. The last enemy that shall be destroyed is death. Verse 27, For he hath put all things under his feet, but when he saith all things are put under him, it is manifested that he is accepted, which did put all things under him. That is, God the Father is the exception. And when all things shall be subdued unto him, then shall the Son, the Son of God, also himself be subject unto him, that put all things under him, that God may be all in all. So finally, God being all in all, you will have this association in heaven as far as the Godhead. You'll have God the Father and God the Son, and we know that the Holy Spirit is always present because he is, the Bible teaches, the Holy Spirit to be the third person of the Trinity. Now then some might say, well then, is the Son of less uh, power or of less uh, honor in some way than God the Father? No, not at all. Even when Jesus was upon this earth, and if you turn to John chapter 17, he shows us that he took the place of being secondary. He took the place of being submissive to the Father on purpose, and that when he so pleased, he would honor the Father by his submission to the Father. And this was this is the order from the beginning. If you look in chapter 17 of John, it says, These words spake Jesus, lifted up his eyes to heaven, and said, Now look. Father, glorify, uh, Father, the hour has come. Now look, glorify thy Son. Now that would be one thing if God the Father was to glorify his Son. But notice that Jesus says, that thy Son also may glorify thee. Can you see how that Jesus is willing for the Father to glorify him? Not that he might have the preeminence, but that he might in turn glorify the Father. So this is the perfect harmony and unity of the Godhead. And we could go on and read there and, and carry the same thought through the next few verses. But if you'll turn back now, 1 Corinthians 15, hold your place that we're studying in the Bible. Uh, all the while, we'll continue with that. Paul goes on to say in verse 29, Else what shall 
they do which are baptized for the dead if the dead rise not at all. Why are they then baptized for the dead? Now remember, he's talking about whether or not the dead rise. There were some of the Corinthians, he said, how say some among you uh, that there is no resurrection of the dead. Verse uh, 12 shows you that. Some were saying there was no resurrection from the dead. Now then, there's been much controversy and much misunderstanding about this verse. And possibly this is one of the things that Peter points out that Paul wrote that's a, a thing that's hard to be understood. If you care to turn to Second Peter chapter 3, I'll read it for you anyway, uh, verses 15 and 16. Peter, in referring to Paul's writing, says this. He says, An account that the long-suffering of our Lord is salvation, even as our beloved brother Paul also, according to the wisdom given unto him, hath written unto you, as also in all his epistles, speaking in them, that is, in the letters of Paul, speaking in them of these things, in which are some things hard to be understood. Paul wrote some things that are hard to be understood. And I kind of believe that, that if we were to refer to anything that Paul wrote that's hard to be understood, it may be this verse we've just read in 1 Corinthians 15. It says, which the unlearned and, and unstable rest or twist, as they do also other scriptures, unto their own destruction. But now let's look at this verse very carefully. I believe that this is what uh, Paul is actually saying in verse 29. Else what shall they do which are baptized for the dead, if the dead rise not? In other words, it would be foolish to become a Christian and to be baptized in hope of being uh, resurrected and reunited with your loved ones if there was no such thing as the dead rising not. If the dead rise not at all, why would one want to become a Christian in the first place and be baptized in order of having the hope of being reunited with your loved ones? being baptized for the dead. Now look at the last part. Why are they then baptized for the dead? Carry this same thought through, and I believe in the next several verses, that if we would use this thought, if the dead rise not, it will answer the questions as we go down in the next few verses. Keep this in mind. If the dead rise not, if the dead rise not, look at verse 30. Why stand we in jeopardy every hour? In other words, why are we so exposed to danger from a hostile world? Why do we put up with what we do, stand in jeopardy, preaching the resurrection of Christ, if the dead rise not? And then in verse 31, I protest by your rejoicing, which I have in Christ Jesus our Lord, I die daily. Why would Paul uh, protest wrongdoing in the Corinthian church? Why would he praise those that would have rewards in heaven if there was no giving account at the judgment seat of Christ, if there was no resurrection from the dead. Why would Paul go on to fight the conflicts, as it says in verse 32, fight with beasts, fight the fierce enemies? If after the manner of men I have fought with beasts at Ephesus, what advantageth it me if the dead rise not? You see, there's the statement again. If the dead rise not, why would he undergo all of this in the battle? Let us eat and drink. For tomorrow we die. In other words, let's live like the world if the dead rise not. What, what advantage is there to being a Christian? What advantage is there to make a profession of faith? What advantage is there to be baptized? What advantage is there to, to uh, be, stand in jeopardy preaching the resurrection of Christ? What advantage is it to, to uh, fight the conflicts, fight the good fight of faith if the dead rise not? And I believe that's the verse are the phrase that will help us to understand all of these things. Verse 20, 
uh, verse 33, rather. Be not deceived. He says, evil communication corrupt good manners. Now, that's not only true that just evil speaking in general corrupts good manners. But it's not just evil speaking. It's evil speaking by those that deny the resurrection, such that deny the resurrection will corrupt the fundamental principles of Christianity. Because anyone who denies the resurrection of Christ will corrupt not only good manners, but this kind of evil speaking or false teaching or not believing that the dead are resurrected, as some of these did not believe, and you can refer back to verse 12, will certainly corrupt the fundamental principles and teachings of Christianity because everything stands or falls on the resurrection of Christ. If you'll remember, Paul tells us in the verses before the 20th, I would say from verse uh, 13 on down to verse 19, that everything stands or falls with Christ's resurrection. He says, if Christ be not risen, our preaching is vain, your faith is vain, you're yet in your sins. Those that are fallen asleep in Christ are perished. We're found false witnesses of God. Christ be not risen. We're of all men most miserable, for only in this life could we have hope. No hope beyond life, on the door of death and of a life to come, if Christ be not risen. Everything stands or falls there. Now then look at verse 34. He says, Awake to righteousness and sin not, for some have not the knowledge of God. I speak this to your shame. I speak this to your shame. You know what Paul was saying? That they needed to study the Word. That they need to have a greater knowledge of God. That they need to, needed to be awakened. That they needed to have an eye-opening toward the Scripture. That they needed to uh, have a scriptural knowledge so that they would depart from sin. In verse 35, he goes on to show how some questioned about what body we would have after the resurrection, or if they accepted the truth of the resurrection of Christ and the resurrection of believers. Verse 35, but some men will say, how are the dead raised up, and with what body do they come? What kind of body are they going to have when they're resurrected? Thou fool, that which thou sowest is not quickened except it die. For there to be a resurrection, there has to be death. Just like Jesus said, except a grain of wheat fall into the ground and die, it abideth alone. In other words, if the farmer doesn't plant that grain of wheat and sow that grain of wheat in the ground, that grain of wheat will dry up and you'll either turn it into food now, you'll, it'll disappear, it will have no more resurrection value, that'll be all of it. But if you plant it in the soil, then out of the death and the germination of that grain of wheat or corn or whatever grain it is, will come forth life and the stalk and the blade, and you'll find the plant will exist. And otherwise, it abides alone. It will not bring forth any fruit. And so that which is sown, uh, that uh, thou fool, that which thou sowest is not quickened, except it die. It has to die in order to bring that about. It says in verse 37, And that which thou sowest, thou sowest not that body that shall be, but bare grain. It may chance of wheat or of some other grain. In other words, what you do sow is the, is the bare grain of wheat, isn't it? You sow simply wheat. You sow the grain. You don't see the plant. You don't sow the plant, do you? You sow the grain. And so then, when it comes forth, you have uh, a different body to that which was sown. You have the resurrection of that 
grain that was sown. You have a plant. The blade comes forth. The livestock feed on it during the winter. It keeps growing and bushing out and making more uh, of a body of a plant. And then finally, each one of these put on their heads their the grain, and you come along and there's a great harvest of the wheat or corn or whatever is sown. And so you have the resurrection aspect. And this shows us, this illustrates the fact that we will be resurrected out of death and we will have a glorified body. We won't be the same as we're sown in the earth. We will be glorified. The plant itself will be realized. And then let's notice other illustrations. He gives several to show us. Look in verse 38. But God giveth it a body as it pleased, as it hath pleased him, and to every seed his own body. In other words, the plant comes forth from every seed in the fashion or way that it pleases God. Now then, he uses the various kinds of flesh in verse 39 to illustrate uh, this body as well. How do the dead come? How are they raised, it says? We're still dealing with a question of verse 35. But some men will say, how are the dead raised up and with what body do they come? With what body do they come? That's the question we're answering. Paul's giving various thoughts concerning with what body they do come. Verse uh, 39, he says this, all flesh is not the same flesh. But there is one kind of flesh of men, another flesh of beasts, another of fishes, another of birds. He used these various kinds of flesh, and each kind has a body fitted for its needs. It's all flesh, but it has a body. You and I can't very well eat fish food, and you see all these various kinds of beasts. They eat various kinds of food, and it's all fitted for its needs. And that's what uh, Paul is showing here. We're going to have a body that's fitted for our needs and glory. The earthly body is not going to be the same as the heavenly body. And we'll get into that in a moment. In verse 40 and 41, he's going to show us that by the celestial bodies that there's also an illustration of our individual identity and the difference that we will be in heaven. Though we'll all be glorified, we will yet be identified and we will retain our identity that we have here upon the earth. And I think that's what you'll see in the next few verses. Look at it now. In verse 40, there are also celestial bodies and bodies terrestrial. But the glory of the celestial is one and the glory of the terrestrial is another. There is one glory of the sun and another glory of the moon. The sun and the moon do not look alike, though they're these heavenly bodies, right? But they don't look alike. And there's and another glory of the stars. And even the stars, it says, for one star differeth from another star in glory. They're all different, but they're all stars. All right, let's try to picture ourselves. With what body do we come? What are we going to be like when we're all going to be like Jesus, the Bible says? The Bible teaches that we're all going to be glorified together. But are we all going to be absolutely identical? No. One star differs from another star in glory. And so are we going to differ even though we be of the same glorified body in heaven? Our new bodies will be adapted to the needs of an immortal soul. And by the heavenly bodies here, we see that every star differing from the other star so will we retain our identity as we are different here, so will we be different there. We'll have the same identity in heaven as we have here. In other words, we'll know each other in heaven, and we'll see people as they are here. But we'll all be glorified, just as we're all earthly here and all uh, mortal here, 
we will be all heavenly there and all immortal souls and yet in all glorified bodies and yet we will differ in glory so that we'll retain our identity in glory. Let's, let me give you a reference. Look in Luke 13 verses 28 and 29. It says, There shall be weeping and gnashing of teeth when ye shall see Abraham. Now look, who are you going to see? Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and all the prophets in the kingdom of God. Who are you going to see? You're going to see all these different ones. They're all going to be the same person. So there's Abraham, there's Isaac, and Jacob, and all the prophets in the kingdom of God. And he's speaking to those that wouldn't enter. He says, and you yourselves thrust out. Verse 29 says, and they shall come from the east and from the west and from the north and from the south and shall sit down in the kingdom of God. All these that come and sit down with Abraham and Isaac and Jacob in the kingdom of God, they're going to be just as different in glory. Though glorified with them, they're still going to be identified separately, just as Abraham is different from Isaac and Isaac, Jacob, and so on in the kingdom of God. If you'll remember that Jesus was on the Mount of Transfiguration, and the Bible says there appeared with him Moses and Elijah talking with him. Peter, James, and John were taken up on a high mountain of parties, and Jesus was transfigured before them. His face did shine as the sun. His raven was white as the light. The Bible says there appeared Moses and Elijah, and they were speaking with Jesus of what? his decease, which he should accomplish at Jerusalem. And in all of this, Peter, though he'd never seen Moses, Peter and James and John, he recognized Moses and Elijah speaking with Jesus. How did he do that? Because he was lifted away in such a spiritual atmosphere when Jesus was so transfigured before them that it was a foretaste of that heavenly glory that we will all know and we will know each other and we will be known. And though we'll all be glorified, we shall be, uh, we shall be identified. We'll maintain our identity in glory. Isn't that a wonderful thing? You're not going to lose that. I'd hate to think that we'd all look the same, wouldn't you? Everyone just the same. You line up 20 million souls and they all look just the same. That might be a little monotonous. But the Lord is going to make us all look like we look. Oh, the crippled man won't be crippled anymore. We'll, we'll make a few exceptions because he's going to have a glorified body. And I'm sure we won't have all of the things that, that uh, are subject to this physical body now or that uh, hold us back in this physical body. The man with a withered hand, his hand won't be withered. He'll, he'll still be the same person. You'll still be able to know him. And the blind man will have his eyes open. He won't be a blind man any longer. And all of these things but he'll still have his identity in glory. And so uh, we can look forward to that. Now let's look at some of the comparisons here between the physical and earthly and the heavenly. It says in verse 42, So also is the resurrection of the dead. With what body do they come? They're going to differ in glory. We're going to be fitted for eternity. How is it going to come? It's going to be sown in corruption. Right now it's corruption. It is raised in corruption, in incorruption. From corruption to incorruption. It is sown in dishonor. It is raised in glory. Now the body is in dishonor. but And it's going to go back to the grave, the dust. It's going to be raised in glory. It is sown in weakness. We have not the power over death, do we? But it's going to be raised in power. Christ has power over death, hell, and the grave. And he's going to raise us up from the dead. In verse 44, it is sown a natural body. But it says, it is raised a spiritual body. It be fitted for a spiritual kingdom. 
It'll be fitted for heaven. There is a natural body and there is a spiritual body. There is both. We must confess that, believe that, accept that. And so it is written, the first man Adam was made a living soul. The last Adam was made a quickening, resurrecting spirit. So that we're going to be spiritually resurrected. Howbeit that which uh, was not first, howbeit that was not first, which is spiritual. The spiritual didn't come first. But after, but that which is natural, and afterward that which is spiritual. See, we were natural first. Earthly, or earthy, as Paul says here. We usually say earthly, but this says earthy. The first man is of the earth, earthy. The second man is the Lord from heaven. That's heavenly. As is the earthy, such are they also that are earthy. That's our natural. That's the earthy body. And as is the heavenly, such are they also that are heavenly. As we have borne the image of the earthy, we shall also bear the image of the heavenly. We now have this earthy or earthly, as most of us say, image, don't we? And we will maintain it. We will have it. We will bear this image until when? Until we pass from this earth through death or through Christ coming and translating us and transforming us into a glorified body, we'll either pass through the clod or the cloud, whichever comes first in our life. We'll go back to the dust, or we'll be taken up to meet the Lord in the clouds. And so shall we ever be with the Lord. I hope some of us go by the way of the cloud, don't you? Instead of by the way of the clod. There's going to be a, a generation of people. There's going to be some when Jesus comes, and he could very well, well come in our day and time, that will not see death and will not have to go that way. If you'll remember the scripture in Hebrews that says, it is appointed unto men once to die. Look at that very carefully now. He does not say it is appointed unto all men once to die. It says appointed unto men once to die. This is the general trend of man. Death reigned from Adam to Moses. Paul tells us in Romans chapter 5, death reigns today over all those of us who are of this earth and of the and from Adam. And it will reign until that time that all men will not die and some will be changed in a moment in the twinkling of an eye and be caught up to meet the Lord with the dead in Christ that are resurrected. But until that time comes, we accept the fact that the general rule is, unless you're a, an Elijah or an Enoch, taken to heaven without death, that we will die. And through death, we're going to be with the Lord. And Paul says that when we die, we do go to be with the Lord, as far as our spirit's concerned. And it awaits the day of resurrection. Paul says it is far better to depart and to be with Christ. And he says, we know if our earthly house of this tabernacle, this tabernacle of clay, were dissolved, we have a building of God, and a house not made with hands, eternal in the heavens. So we're going to leave this body behind one of these days, unless Jesus comes. And wouldn't you like to be the exception to that rule? And so all men will not die. Some will be changed. We'll get into that in a moment. Look at verse 50. Now this I say, brethren, that flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God. Neither, neither doth corruption inherit incorruption. Behold, I show you a mystery. Here's the answer to that. If flesh and blood shall not inherit the kingdom of God, then what's going to happen? When Jesus comes and we're still in flesh and blood, we're still living in the flesh, blood flowing in our veins, what's going to happen when Jesus comes then? How are we going to enter glory if flesh and blood shall not enter the kingdom? He tells us here, we shall not all sleep, that is, be dead, or dead in Christ. The word sleep is always referring to, at, when it refers to the dead, refers to the Christian dead, the believing dead. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all 
be changed, whether we're asleep or awake when Christ comes. We shall all be changed. Now, how is this going to happen, Paul? It says, in a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trump, for the trumpet shall sound, and the dead, the sleep, the dead shall be raised incorruptible, and we shall be changed. We. Paul is anticipating that time that some will go to heaven without dying. We shall be changed. We that are alive and remain. If you turn to First Thessalonians chapter 4, Paul says this in the 13th verse, But I would not have you to be ignorant, brethren, concerning them which are asleep, that you sorrow not, even as others which have no hope. For if we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so them also which sleep in Jesus will God bring with him. For this we say unto you by the word of the Lord, that we which are alive and remain unto the coming of the Lord. Some are going to be alive and remain unto the coming of the Lord. The mystery that Paul is showing is saying that we shall be changed when the dead are resurrected. And those of us that are alive and remain unto the coming of the Lord shall not prevent. That word prevent means to proceed or to go before. We shall not prevent them which are asleep. We will not go before, though we're alive and remain to the coming of the Lord, if we're of that day and generation of people. We'll not go before the dead in Christ. We will not prevent them which are asleep. And he goes on to say, For the Lord himself shall descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of the archangel, and with the trump of God, and the dead in Christ, the sleep in Jesus, the dead in Christ shall rise first. Then we which are alive and remain. Notice how Paul uses his own, this personal pronoun. How he uses we. How he says we. He expected, he felt as if he could be one of the ones that would be alive and remain. And we ought to use the same language, shouldn't we? Today, certainly after 2,000 years, we know that the coming of Jesus is drawing near. We may be alive and remain at the coming of the Lord. He says, then we which are alive and remain shall be caught up together with them, that is the dead in Christ, in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and so shall we ever be with the Lord. Wherefore, comfort one another with these words. So what's going to happen? One of these days, the same Jesus that went away into heaven is going to appear in the clouds of heaven. And at that time, a great quake of this earth is going to take place. And I don't mean literally, though it could be. The dead are going to rise. And the living believers at that time are going to be changed and transformed, as Paul says, in the twinkling of an eye when the trumpets sound, and we shall be changed. We'll be caught up together with them in the clouds to what? Meet the Lord in the air. Not upon the earth, but in the air. And so shall we ever be with the Lord. We'll be with him as long as he's in the air. And you read Revelation chapter 19, and it says that the Lord comes back to this earth, and he comes as King of kings and Lord of lords, and the Bible says the armies of heaven follow him on white horses and dressed in fine linen, clean and white. And the fine linen is the righteousness of the saints. So all the saints of God that have been taken on to be with the Lord in heaven are coming back, back to this earth, with the Lord Jesus to judge the wicked upon this earth and then a great millennial kingdom will be set up after the victory of that time upon this earth and all the ones that have part in the first resurrection that we spoke of earlier at the very beginning of our message will live and reign with Christ a thousand years. And the wolf and the lamb and the lion shall lie down together, the lion and the ox 
all will be harmony in the animal kingdom. There will be no hostility or no violence or no uh, enmity. And the child can pick up the snake, the poisonous rattler, or the copperhead. It won't be harmed. But the Bible says, and dust shall be the serpent's meat. The sign of the curse will still be there, but the enmity that was brought about by the curse will not be there. Let me hurry and give you this. We're about Our time's about gone. So in verse uh, 53, For this corruptible must put on incorruption, and this mortal must put on immortality. We have to be changed. We're corruptible now. It's going to put on incorruption. We're mortal now. We must put on immortality. Immortality has to do with the body. We put on a body that's not mortal. It'll be immortal. So when this corruptible shall have put on incorruption, and this mortal shall have put on immortality, then shall be brought to pass the saying that is written, Death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is thy sting? O grave, where is thy victory? The sting of death is sin. And the strength of sin is the law. But thanks be to God which giveth us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. We have the promise of victory over sin and victory over death and victory over the grave through Jesus Christ. And this will come in due time. Victory over sin. Victory over death. Victory over the grave. We'll have no sin in heaven. We'll have no, we'll no longer be subject to death and glory. All this will be in the past. Now then, what conclusion does Paul draw and bring to us from all of this? In other words, having the assurance of the resurrection of Christ, that it is an assured fact to every believer, not only the dead in Christ that have gone on, but every living believer, what assurance does he give us? He, and encouragement does he give us? He says, therefore, look at that word, therefore. Therefore, my beloved brethren, be ye steadfast, unmovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, for as much as ye you know that your labor is not in vain in the Lord. Encouragement to abound in the work of the Lord is based upon the assurance of our resurrected and glorified being in the presence of Christ. Now, someone says, well, what if I don't make it? What if... What if after believing in Christ and having my faith in the resurrection and in the life to come, Paul uses the very assurance of the fact to encourage you to work for the Lord and to serve the Lord. You see, in other words, knowing, look at this, for as much as you know that your labor in the Lord is not in vain, you know he's going to resurrect you. You know that your labor is not in vain. You know that these promises that he's made to you are true. So this is an encouragement and an incentive to work for the Lord while we're here. So you might say the assurance of salvation, the assurance that comes of the resurrection, the assurance that of all the life to come with the Lord encourages us, it doesn't discourage us, but rather encourages us to better serve him and to be steadfast and unmovable, always abounding the work of the Lord. Okay, we thank you for your uh, kind attention. Let's stand together for a word of prayer, please.